Well, good morning, Highland Church. Rather tepid, but good morning. You know, before we jump into our uh, story for today, can we just agree to two things? First thing is this. It's cold out, is it not? It's just cold out. And even though it's kind of a, it's a COVID situation where we want to, you know, maintain social distancing, frankly, we re really want to hug each other, don't we? And sit close to someone else and just steal their body heat. I think we would like to do that. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think we need to agree upon is this, that those people who invented heated car seats and remote car starters, they deserve every dollar they can get for those inventions, can they not? Absolutely. Well, a friend of mine and a member of our church was sensing a call to, to missions. So he and his wife ultimately spent uh, some years in Tanzania, in the capital city, Dar es Salaam, as it was then. Uh, Trudy and I, my wife, v visited them. Uh, we were invited to join them on a very unusual short-term uh, missions trip. It was basically a prayer trip, and we were to join with uh, about eight or nine others, and for 10 days, we were going to prayer walk through the city of Dar es Salaam, and uh, there we were going to, uh, as we walked through these neighborhoods, we were to be praying against the spiritual strongholds, sensing where we might find a spiritual opposition, spiritual darkness. And so in addition to that, there were some small African congregations in these places. We prayed with pastors. We'd come together periodically in the course of the day, talk about what we had sensed, and we continued to cover ourselves with God's protection. It was a, a very unusual type of trip, but it was very, very significant. I remember uh, we traveled to regions where I'm sure that some of the African children there had never seen Caucasians before, because I remember as we were walking through there, uh, we would have little African children coming up to us and grabbing our hands and rubbing our skin and pinching us. They had never seen such pale skin before, and uh, it was uh, quite an experience. So one of the stories that we heard from our missionary friend while we were there was that uh, at a recent pastoral training conference that the missionaries had sponsored. And uh, uh, African pastors came from uh, little villages around to receive training. Well, one of the pastors came up to my missionary friend, and he said to him that he, he needed to return to his village because a member of his congregation was also a member of that village had recently died. So my missionary friend said, well, isn't there someone else in your church that could visit the home and provide comfort to the family? And the pastor's response was so good. He said this, no, I need to go home and pray over this person to see if God wants him to remain dead. That's a whole different way of praying, isn't it? I mean, that is a God-pleasing worldview. And this pastor had a worldview that provided space for God to display His power and His glory in real life. He had a worldview that permeates every chapter in the book of Acts. 
Uh, today we're going to be looking at chapters 3 and 4, and the story is found in, in chapter 3. And what we are going to be saying, as we said a couple of weeks ago, that in each of the chapters in the book of Acts, we are going to see the Holy Spirit flexing His muscle. And so in chapter 3, we have the story that it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the, the time of the afternoon prayer at the temple, that Peter and John are going to the temple, and they go through a, a, a gate to the temple that is called Beautiful. And there is a man who has been crippled from birth who is being placed at that gate. Uh, what a contrast. Here's a man who has been crippled from birth who is laid at a gate that is called beautiful. You get a little bit of the tension associated with the story. So as Peter and John are walking by, we're told that the man gave to them his attention, expecting them to give him some money. And so in verse 6 of chapter 3, Peter said this, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. And I'm reminded of that children's song, aren't you? Walking and leaping and praising God. And indeed, that's, this is where that song comes from. So, uh, all the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. What a grand story. Here's a man who asks for a few simple coins, and instead he's given the gift of healing and health. Let me fast forward about a thousand years. Um, uh, there's a man, a scholar, a uh, middle-aged uh, theologian by the name of Sir Thomas Aquinas. Brilliant man. And on one occasion, he was visiting the Pope in Rome. And as the story goes, the, the Pope was showing him the vast papal treasury. And it was vast. So much so that the Pope said to uh, Aquinas, he said, Thomas, no longer can it be said of the church, silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas replied, ah, that is true, your holiness, and no longer can she also say, rise, take up your pallet and walk. The Pope had substituted financial power for spiritual power. Now, in this story, we see that miracles such as this perform or they accomplish two purposes. The first purpose is in verse 9, where we're told that the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him. And so the first purpose of a miracle, in the book of Acts especially, is the fact that miracles gain people's attention. There's something about miracles that will draw a crowd. And that's indeed what happens here. And then down in verse 16, as the crowd gathers, Peter then speaks to the crowd and he says, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this man complete healing. And so not only do miracles uh, draw people's attention, but secondly, they authenticate the message about Jesus. 
as a crowd gathers to hear of, of a miracle that God has performed, it is an occasion to authenticate the message about Jesus, that this Jesus truly is the one who he said he was, and he has power to bring healing and wholeness to a person's life. So, it's late in the day, and so as we come to chapter 4, the preaching of Peter and John irritated the religious leaders. They put them in jail for the evening, and the next morning they bring them out to the Sanhedrin, which was the most powerful assembly uh, for the Jewish people throughout the world, located right there in Jerusalem. And so, in verse 5, the next day of chapter 4, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. So, we have all the high priest and his family there. And so, they brought Peter and John before them, verse 7, and they asked them, by what power or what name did you do this? And so, that question establishes the topic for the entire chapter. 4. By what power did you perform this miracle? And so what we're going to do today is that we're going to look through chapter 4 and we're going to see five conduits through which the Holy Spirit fills and empowers not only a personal life but also a faith community. And so the first conduit is in verses 10 to 13. So, uh, as the conversation continues, we read in verse 13 this description of Peter and John. When they, when the Sanhedrin saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So, the first conduit that we're going to be speaking of today is the conduit of the power of a transformed life. They were unschooled, meaning that they had not been trained in the law. They were common people, tradespeople. They were fishermen. And not only that, they were ordinary. They were not experts, yet they were extremely articulate. The Greek language of these two words is so vivid. The word uh, for uneducated is the word grammar. It gives us our English word grammar. And then there's a prefix in front of it that says that they were not grammared. They were ungrammared. The, the second word uh, for ordinary uh, is the word idiotes in Greek, which gives to us our English word idiot. And so you put these two words together, and these powerful leaders looked upon Peter and John, and they said, you are ungrammared idiots. Literally, that's what they're calling these men. Ungrammared idiots. And yet, they're courageous, they are articulate, and they begin to understand that even though they had not been under or participants in one of the accepted or recognized rabbinical schools of the day, they had been taught because they had been in the company of the rabbi, Jesus. And their lives had been transformed by him. So, let's just be very clear. Jesus transforms lives. And a transformed life is powerful. Very powerful. When people who didn't know Jesus come to know Jesus, and they begin to change, and they become better, and they become uh, overcomers of addictions and habits and those sorts of things. They become kinder and gentler. Rest assured, that is 
powerful, is it not? 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, Paul says it like this. And we all, with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So that's what happens in our lives as we permit the Spirit of God to be at work in us. Degree by degree, moment by moment, habit by habit, He begins to transform us. And that life becomes incredibly powerful. Uh, imagine this for a moment. You're overweight and you are out of shape. And it's discouraging. And so, uh, you know, you, you get up in the morning. Men, you know, you get, you, you get in your skivvies. You get down to as, as little weight as you can possibly, you know, have on your body. And then you get on the scale and you read what's on the scale. That's a little disappointing. And then you look in the mirror and you go, that is revolting. And it goes like this. Uh, men, remember those days as we look in the mirror and we were a V. Remember that? Broad shoulders, narrow hips. I mean, those were the great days, weren't they? And you look in the mirror now and you go, that V has become an O. It's just, you look and you go, that is just terrible. Well, day after day, you get on the scale and nothing is changing. You look in the mirror and nothing is changing there. And why is nothing happening? Because you're not doing anything to change your body. You're not going to the gym. You're not exercising. You're not changing your eating habits. How would you ever expect to change your physical shape if you're not putting any effort into it? Well, likewise, how would we ever expect our lives to change on the inside if we're never in the company of Jesus? I'm just convinced that Jesus will make you a better man, husband, and father. Jesus will make you a better woman, wife, and mother. That's what he promises to do in our lives. But it's going to require being in his company so that his spirit speaks and moves and brings forth changes in our lives. The power of a transformed life. Here's a second conduit. It's in verses 19 uh, and 20. It's called the power of convictions. So after they encounter Peter and John, they send them out of the room, and they say, what should we do with these fellows? And they say, well, let's just tell them to be quiet. And so in verses 19 and 20, we, we read this as they come back into the room, and Peter and John hear that they, they, were, they, were, they were told to shush up. And Peter and John said, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. But as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Do you see the convictions in their response there? So let me make a distinction between opinions and convictions. Uh, people hold opinions on a variety of subjects. But convictions hold people. Vast difference, isn't it? People hold opinions, but convictions hold people. Three times in chapter 4, in verses 13 and 29 and 31, the same word, courage, is used. 
There's something about having convictions that release courage in a person's life. There's a great author uh, about 100 years ago. His name is G.K. Chesterton. And this is what he said about courage. Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and yet drink death like wine. What an apt description of courage that, that is displayed in Peter and John's response. To be a consistent follower of Jesus Christ, I think there are two convictions that we need to have. The first is a conviction about Jesus himself. So that in verse 12 of chapter 4, Peter said this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so there is a conviction about the person of Jesus, that he is fully God and that he is fully man and that he is the way that a person can have a relationship with God. And we believe that by being in the company of Jesus that he transforms our lives. That's the first conviction that we need to have. But, but a second conviction is about the Scriptures, uh, the, the conviction that this is a trustworthy book and that what is told in this book is accurate, it is without error, and frankly, that this book is the authority over our lives. It is the final authority for us. You see, if, if you have questions about the trustworthiness of the Scriptures and its authority over you, you're going to waffle and, and wobble in your Christian life. And, and you will find that, that if it's not that authority, you're not going to have any convictions. You're not going to have any uh, uh, courage. You're not going to have any power because all you have is an opinion about what God says in this book. In order to have uh, a consistent walk with Christ, it comes to having those two convictions. The third conduit is found in verses 23 uh, to 31. It's the, the, the power of, of corporate prayer. So after these fellows have been released, they go back uh, to the church and they tell the church, what has happened, and so a spontaneous corporate prayer meeting erupts in that gathering. And so, just to set the context, remember now, these two fellows have been threatened by a very powerful group, a group that has assumed that they have control over the life and the destiny of, of Peter and John. And because they felt that, they gave them these commands. Do not speak any longer. And so they come back to the church, and how do they begin their prayer? It is so beautiful. They start by saying, Sovereign. They raise their voices together in prayer to God, and they said, Sovereign. 
You know, and, you know these, the, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, he thought he had sovereignty over their lives. And as they begin to pray, they say, God, you are sovereign, and they are not. The next word, Lord, you are Lord, and they are not. You made the heavens and the earth. You're the creator. They are not. And as the prayer continues, they add to that, that, Lord, they are only doing what you said would happen. And in in fact, um, these men are just mere pawns of your great plan. It is so beautiful to see what they are doing here. And these men who had threatened them, are now reduced in size as the church prays and as they begin to talk about the sovereign Lord, creator, controller of all the events in the world, suddenly these men and their threats are shrunk back to their proper size because they have that God perspective. How beautiful it is. And so as we come, as the prayer continues, he says, Now, Lord, consider your threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They wanted God to continue to show himself to be powerful. And he did immediately because it says in verse 31, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Have you ever been in a church prayer meeting like that? Where the foundations shook? I haven't either. But I'd love for it to occur. Just to be reminded, who sits on the throne? Wouldn't it be good? Give us courage to speak our convictions. Wow. You know, we can learn something from their prayer. First of all, their, their prayer started over an issue, a threat. And so what did they do? They, they begin to pray, and they wrap that issue, first of all, in the attributes of God. He is sovereign Lord Creator. And so they, they wrap it in the nature of God. They, they wrap it in the purposes of God, and they wrap it in the promises of God in the Scriptures. It seems to me that would be helpful to us as we think about real corporate prayer. We have an issue, and we say, okay, God, who are you, and what are you doing, and what does your word say? And that generally will create probably a pretty powerful time of prayer. And Jesus, as you're working in this situation, remembering, release your power. Release your power into the world providing God space so that he can do what he wants to do. And so that's number three. Number four is in verses 32 through 37. It's called the power of community. And so in verse 32, we read this. And all the believers were one in heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, by this point in time, this is a mega, mega, mega church. And yet, notice the, the, the intimacy, the caring within that community. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. What a beautiful description of the community. That type of community is powerful, very powerful. Henry Chadwick wrote a book about the early church, and this is what he says in that book, they, the practical application of charity was probably the most potent single cause of Christian success. Let me say that again. The practical application of charity was probably the most potent single cause of Christian success. The pagan comment, how these Christians love one another, was not irony. You see, the charity that they expressed in that early church for the poor, widows, orphans, those in prison, hospitality to travelers, even the burial of poor people. It was such an attractive, caring community that people wanted to join because it was so rich, loving, and giving with one another. That's powerful, is it not? And finally, number five is power in the name of Jesus. Nine times in these two chapters, reference is made to the name of Jesus. Now, as we look into the Gospels and we see Jesus interacting with death and disease and the demonic, when we, we, we see Jesus interacting with those, He invoked no other deity. There was no formula and no particular phrase that he used because he was the authority. He was the power. And when he spoke, as the old um, Christian vocalist years ago, Andre Crouch, some of us will remember him. I remember hearing him say, demons tremble at that name. And they still do. There's power in the name of Jesus. And so when Peter addresses this cripple and he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. What he's saying is that what Jesus did when he was on the earth continues through people who are followers of Christ, who have the faith and the audacity to use the name of Jesus. Now, lest we think that that name and that formula can be used tritely, let's look at Acts chapter 19. 
Luke adds this very significant story. He says, but there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists who tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were possessed by an evil spirit, saying, I sternly warn you by Jesus who Paul preaches. But the evil spirit replied, I know about Jesus and I am acquainted with Paul, but who are you? I love that. Who are you? The man who was possessed by the evil spirit jumped on them and beat them all into submission, and he prevailed against them so that they fled from that house naked and wounded. Here's the point. The name of Jesus is only powerful with people who know Jesus, who have the faith that Jesus can do the things that he does as the Son of God. People who live, leave space for God to do something that would absolutely show how great He is. Power in the name of Jesus. So those are the five conduits in, in Acts chapter 4. And I want to end today on a very personal note. I want to share with you uh, an observation of mine as well as a fear of mine. So, first of all, the observation. It seems as though for, that for the past 40 years, evangelicals have increasingly become involved in the political arena. Concerns about where our country was trending has brought out a legitimate concern, and prominent Christian leaders have encouraged us to get involved, and we did. It was appropriate and that continues today. And actually, in the latter couple of years, the conversation and the chatter has risen exponentially. And sometimes it's taken to an extreme. And so uh, there's a term that has increasingly been used in America today. It is called Christian nationalism. I encourage you to study it. Uh, there's a difference, a vast difference between Christian nationalism and being a Christian patriot. And I want you to know today that I am firmly in the Christian patriot camp, not at all in the Christian nationalism camp. So I came across a quote that I was reading a book recently, and it gave me great clarity about uh, what I see happening in American Christianity. It comes from a Czech dissident by the name of Vaclav Havel. Some of you will remember that name from the 1980s and perhaps the early 1990s. And he wrote in a book, uh, The Power of the Powerless. He made this statement. A better system will not automatically ensure a better life. In fact, the opposite is true. Only by creating a better life can a better system be developed. I think that's incredibly wise, and I would agree with that statement. And this is where I come to my fear. My fear is that for the past two generations, American evangelicals have given an inordinate amount of attention to bettering the government and its systems and societal systems and forgot that better lives create better systems. The early church 
we're studying the early church now in the book of Acts. The early church did not try to change the Roman system. As corrupt, evil, hedonistic as it was, for goodness sakes, you had to stand before the emperor, Caesar, and say, Caesar is Lord. That's how, how pagan, how grandiose, how prideful the government was. Caesar was Lord. And, of course, Trisha said, we can't say that. But they didn't actively oppose it. They just said, we can't say that because of their conviction that Jesus alone is Lord. So the Roman system was as corrupt as it could ever be. And yet we see in the book of Acts, the church and the focus of the church was upon bettering the lives of people and their faith community. Now, ultimately, the Roman system was changed. But it was not changed by focusing upon the systems, but upon creating better lives and better faith communities. I am firmly convinced today that the power of a believer and the power of a church movement is not in our voting block, nor is it found in, influ in relationships with influential politicians. Well, so-and-so has been a chaplain of the president, chaplain of the government, or a legislator thinking that by that relationship, real change is going to come. Our power is, and our power will always be in Acts chapter 4. Folks, this is what spiritual power is about. It is about the power of a changed life, that when you become a follower of Christ, that as He transforms you, that your life speaks the reality of God. The, the, the power of convictions that give you the courage to say and to do what you need to do to continue to be a follower of Christ. The, the, the power of a corporate prayer meeting that shakes the spiritual darkness. Power of a loving community that embraces the, the marginalized in society, the homeless, those who are struggling, not being accepted. And the church says, there's a place for you. That's where the power lies. And ultimately, it's power in the name of Jesus. People, this is our sweet spot. This is our sweet spot. This is what God calls a life and a faith community to be. And if we have the courage to live what Acts 4 teaches, lives will be changed. And better lives will produce better systems. Better systems do not create better lives. Let's pray. God, forgive us for thinking that power is found in a treasury whether it be papal or any other 
Forgive us for thinking that our power is found in a voting block. Lord, thank you for your word today that, that tells us that our power comes from the Spirit of God dwelling within us, understanding the significance of the name of Jesus, that it is the name of Jesus who saves, who heals, who delivers, who overcomes. And God, I pray that Highland Community Church would be a church composed of people who are transformed so that people are hungry to learn more about Jesus. And that our doors and our homes and our pocketbooks are so open to those around us who are needy, who are abandoned by society, but they're welcomed here. And, oh, Lord, as that occurs, power will be unleashed into this community in this county. Lord, your scriptures teach that, and I believe it. And I pray that we all would embrace it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.